in chapter 1, reading verses 15 through 20. And I'm new here. Is it going to come up on the screen or we just have, we just, nope. So you got you to go to a Bible. You got to find your way there. So from Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. And here Paul is addressing the church and he's talking about Jesus Christ. And he says, beginning in verse 15, that Jesus Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything might be Preeminent in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, you you teach us in Scripture that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And so as we turn our attention to your word this morning, we pray that in your mercy and your kindness that you would bless our time, that you would bless the reading and the preaching of this word, that we, your children, might know you more. We ask in the wonderful and powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as we turn to Scripture, many of you have already noticed and, and felt that we are turning to one of the most poignant passages that we find that teach us about who Jesus Christ is. In these six short verses, we find some of the most exalted language about describing our Lord and what, who he is and what he's done. And I've chosen this passage for a number of reasons, but one of them is that I thought it would be a good follow-up for anyone who was here the last time I got to preach with you. And so last time we were looking at John 3 and we heard the story of Nicodemus. And Nicodemus had an encounter with Jesus Christ. He met Jesus Christ. And so as I'm thinking, I know that As your pastor's away and you get so many guests coming in and out that it can be a little scattered going from place to place. And I wanted this to be a follow-up. What do we think and what happens to us after we have an encounter with Jesus Christ? And uh, this passage came to mind because I thought it would be good for us after we meet him to spend some time knowing who he is. So you have an encounter with Jesus and everyone who has an encounter with Jesus one of the natural reactions is to think, I want to know more about this man. And that's what happened to Nicodemus, and that's what often happens to us. And so as a follow-up to encountering Jesus, I want to spend our time this morning reflecting on knowing Jesus Christ. To sit at his feet, learn about who he is, about what he's done, and what he has promised to do for us 
his children. And so to do that, we turn to, again, one of the most Christ-focused passages in all of Scripture. Now, all of Scripture is not only God-breathed, but I believe that all of Scripture is about Jesus Christ from the very first beginning of the words in the beginning is how the Bible starts. And then we read in John's Gospel, in the beginning was the Word. And that Word is Jesus. And so all of Scripture is about Jesus. But this particular passage is what you might call one of the most Christ-centered, or what theologians, because they want to you know, sound important and fancy, Christocentric passages of the Bible. And so we're turning to this passage because perhaps more than any other letter, Colossians highlights the prominence and the priority of Jesus Christ. And so let's turn our attention there and see what we might learn about knowing Jesus. And doing so, what we find is Paul really gives us two labels to think about Jesus. He gives us uh, some words that describe who Jesus is, and he gives us some words that describe what Jesus has done. And so those are essentially the way that we're going to look at these passages. We're going to look at who Jesus is, and we're going to look at what Jesus has done. But I wanted to use some of Paul's language, if you're taking notes, or in, in order to, to stick, help stick in your mind. And so our, our time this morning is going to be broken up into two sections. And first, we're going to look at who Jesus is, and we see that you might summarize it by saying that Jesus is before all things. Another way you might say that is that Jesus is first. But Paul uses that phrase that Jesus is before all things. And so we'll spend some time talking about how Jesus is before all things. And then we'll spend some time talking about what Jesus has done. And Paul summarizes it here by telling us in verse 20 that Jesus has reconciled all things. Or Jesus reconciles all things. So Jesus is the one who is before all things. And Jesus is the one who who reconciles all things. And again, in this way, we're looking at who he is and at what he's done. And that, that's probably a, a natural connection for us. I know that maybe, maybe the men in here are more likely to do this than the women, but when you meet someone new and you're getting to know them, one of the first questions that you often ask them is, hey, what do you do? What, what is it that you do? And the reason we ask that question, one of the reasons is, is because our identity is somewhat tied up into what we do. Now, what we do doesn't make us who we are, but Jesus teaches us in, in Matthew 12 and, and also the same stories in Luke. Jesus teaches us that out of the heart, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Right? So, so out of our inner being, we act in certain ways. And so the actions of someone are tied to who they are. Now, again, it doesn't define who they are, but these two things are tied together. And Paul does that here. So I thought that'd be a good way for us to spend our time looking at this passage. So let's turn now first to look at who Jesus is. And as a small heads up, in case any of you like watch time or take notes, we're going to spend a lot more time in this first point. So if we don't get to the second point for a while, don't worry, we're not going to be here until two o'clock. So we're going to look at who Jesus is. In fact, my kids told me, they asked me on the way in, they were like, Daddy, can you make this a short one? And, and so I forget which one of you said it, but you're, you're, it's totally fine. It's absolved. Samuel's trying to tell you. Uh, but it, I don't know if this is going to be a short one, but I promise the second point will be shorter. 
Okay, so we're looking at who Jesus Christ is in this passage. And before we, we get into Paul's uh, description, you know, I've tried to use some of his language to summarize, but I have to confess, it's, it's hard and all, probably impossible to summarize all that Paul says here in one label. Now, I've chosen this, this first passage that Jesus is before all things, but look at the list that he gives you. How can you pick just one of these descriptions to describe who Jesus is? He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. He's the one in whom all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning. He's also the firstborn from the dead, and he is preeminent. My word, how staggering these descriptions of who Jesus Christ is. And we won't be able to do any of these full justice, but let's take a moment and, and look at some of these descriptions and see what Paul is telling us, what our Lord is telling us through this letter about who he is. And Paul starts this passage by saying that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. And the wording here is important. This is almost, this is like an introduction to what comes to follow, that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. And now many of you probably recognize that this language is language that people who were familiar with the Bible, people who've read the Bible, they would know that Paul's borrowing here. But he didn't make that language up. He's actually looking back at the Old Testament, and he's looking back specifically at the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments talk about an image of God. But in the second commandment, what God tells us there is that God tells us, you are not to make any image of God. So we are told and commanded in God's word that we can't make an image of him. And so we come here and it's a little startling to see that Jesus Christ is the very image of the invisible God. He is the thing that we humans are told we can never make. In fact, we're unable to make, we can't make an image of our God. How can you make an image of something that's invisible? But somehow, Jesus Christ is just that. While we were commanded not to make an image, in fact, it was impossible for us to do, God made himself into the image of himself here in flesh and blood. God has come down to us in our very shape and form, and become the image of the invisible God in Jesus Christ. And so Paul continues by telling us that he is the firstborn of all creation. So not only is he the image of the invisible God, the seeming contradiction that has come to life in, in fullness and reality, but he's the firstborn of all creation. And now this, this phrase can be a, a little bit confusing. And some people, uh, over time, and it's happened a long time ago, and it happens even more recently, some people can be tempted to say, well, when, when the Bible says that Jesus is the firstborn of creation, doesn't that mean that, that Jesus, you know, that he's somehow different than God? Right? That, that if Jesus is the firstborn, then somehow he isn't God. But let's be clear, that's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying that Jesus was the first to be born of all things. And it's really clear as we look at the very next phrase of this sentence where Paul says, 
For by him all things were created. So you can't be the firstborn of things that are created if you're the one that created all things. But Paul goes on and he says, not only is Jesus the firstborn of, of, uh, of all creation, but all things were created, whether in heaven or on earth, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So again, Jesus can't be the first thing that was ever born if he created everything that's ever seen. And, and this language is not only earthly, but it's heavenly. Paul talks about the visible and the invisible in his writing. And what he's talking is about, about is he's talking about the things that are earthly, but also the things that are heavenly. And so even the heavenly courts, in the Old Testament, when you get these descriptions of God and his heavenly court with the angels and he's holding court, all of that was created through Jesus Christ. It was created through him and by him. And so Paul is saying, he's using this phrase differently. And so what he's actually saying is he's actually using it as a title. And this is a way that, of saying that Jesus Christ is, is preeminent. He's first. He is the first of all things. He's the fountain from which all things come. Even those things that are heavenly. Jesus Christ is before all things, the firstborn of all creation, whether in heaven or on earth. And this theme that Jesus is first is just then repeated and expanded again and again as we go through this passage. And so going on from verse 17, we see that in Jesus, all things hold together. That Jesus Christ is the head of not only all creation, but the head of the church, the body of Christ here on earth. That he's the beginning. He's the very beginning. But he's also the firstborn from the dead. And in this way, Jesus is preeminent in all things. And we find later in our verse or in our passage that because, as verse 19 says, that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. How utterly incredible. And as I said, we could spend so much time going through each of these titles. And the amazing thing is, and a little bit of a side note, is that one day you and I will get to do that. One day when the Lord returns or when we meet him in eternity, we will get to worship him around the throne and spend the rest of creation just eating up and soaking in the depth of what it means that Jesus Christ was the beginning. He is the beginning. That he is the end. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He is the firstborn of all creation. He's the firstborn of the dead. And so we could, again, spend our time really dwelling in these descriptions. But because, again, my children asked for to make this a short one, and because we don't have all eternity today, let's just take a minute now and think about when when we understand how Scripture describes who Jesus is, what happens to us? What is, what is the application to us? What changes us when we know who Jesus is? And in short, when we see that Jesus is first, everything else becomes second. When we know that Jesus is preeminent, everything else takes on a lesser place. 
our family drove here this morning. We're, we're visiting my family, my extended family, my brother and sister, and we drove, and on the car we were talking about certain things, and, and I, I realized that I could sum up this sermon in three words, and I told my kids about it. And they were like, Daddy, why don't you just do that? Why don't you just sum it up in three words? And it's not my notes, but my, my daughter, my youngest, Charlotte, asked me, she said, make sure you tell them about, about the, the three words. And that summary is that if you were to look at this passage, one way that you could summarize the whole passage is just to say, Jesus is better. Jesus is first. Jesus is better. And when we realize that Jesus is first, everything becomes second. Think about our passage last time I was here, if you were here, how that happened to Nicodemus. Nicodemus has an encounter with Jesus at night, and he comes to him, a seemingly self-important man who thinks he knows something. And then when he meets the, the reality, the fullness of God who is pleased to dwell in man, everything else is flipped upside down. His whole life changes. So that by the end of that gospel, Nicodemus is willing to risk his station in life. He is willing to risk his reputation as a Pharisee. He is willing to risk even put out on display even his own wealth as he brings a wealth of myrrh and spices to uh, bury the Lord in broad daylight. His whole life is flipped upside down because he understood a glimpse of what it means that Jesus is first. And the same thing happens to you or to me or to anyone who meets Jesus Christ. Everything else in our life becomes less important. And actually, as I say that, I don't, I don't want to say that. That's, that's not actually true. It's not that everything else in our life becomes less important when we meet Jesus. Rather, what happens is we see the preeminence of Jesus. And so those things that you are after in your life do not, do not lessen, but they pale in comparison to knowing the one who is before all things. And this happens both with the things that are life that are good, but also the things in the life that are hard and difficult. And so when we think about what does it mean for us to encounter the one who is before all things, what does it look like that these other things and even the good things in our life become second? Well, whatever it is that you that is captivating your attention that is drawing your attention towards. And this happens to me all the time. My wife, we, we joke that I probably have ADD. I've never been diagnosed. But it's so easy to captivate my attention. I am like the dog from Up that is looking at squirrels all the way. Oh, there's a squirrel. That's pretty. Let's look at it. And so what happens when we realize that Jesus is first is that all these good things, whether we're looking forward to our next vacation whether we're looking forward to even, we were looking forward to coming and spending time with you this morning. Those are good things. But it might be you're looking forward to the birth or an adoption of a new child. You're looking forward to a change in, in your life or in your job that's going to have good implications. You're looking forward to either a new exercise routine or a new hobby that you've picked up or, or new clothes or a new car or a new job at work, whatever it is. It can be a good thing, and yet Jesus is better. And when we look to Jesus as better, there's an amazing change that happens with us and with those things. Because all of these things that I've listed, all of them I've personally looked forward to in my own life. But I can tell you 
that all of them ultimately fade and ultimately fail to capture the deepest need in my heart. And so, yes, you can enjoy them for a season, but eventually the shine or the excitement wears off and you remember, or I remember, and you will too, that you are the same person. No matter what shiny new thing comes into your life, you are the same person with the same needs. And I was, as I was thinking about this and contemplating what this meant for me and for us, I'm reminded of a story about Tom Brady. And I told my, my family again that I was going to mention Tom Brady in the sermon, and my son's like, why are you mentioning Tom Brady? When, and and it's part of the reason is because if you, there's this really famous interview he gave and if you stop and you think about who he is, Tom Brady is one of the, the people that I would say that, you know, it's potential that more men in America would want to trade their life for Tom Brady than any other person. And he is the best at the thing that he does in the entire world. He plays the most popular sport in our culture in America. He played for the best teams to have ever played that sport. He has done better than anyone has ever done. And he is, I'm like, you know, it makes you get kind of upset, like from all perspectives. I, I'm not necessarily the best judge, but he seems, or the best judge, but he seems to be a really good looking guy. He seems like he's got it all together. And so Tom Brady did this interview after he'd won three Super Bowls. And they asked, they're just talking to him, they let him talk for a little bit. And uh, he seems, though Tom would seem to be the embodiment of all that the boys of America were told that they should be when they grow up, what he said after winning three Super Bowls is absolutely amazing. He says, you know, I'm, I'm 27. I've reached my goal, my dream, and my life. So imagine that. Imagine being able to say, I've reached the goal of my life. I've reached my dream. And his very next word is, God, there has to be something more. Because even Tom Brady knows the best things that we have are not eternally secure. He won the thing that was most important to him. And at the end of that, he's like, surely there's something more. Surely this isn't it. Because no matter how wonderful our life is, and I do, I hope you have a wonderful life. But even if you lived the gilded life of Tom Brady, you would still know that something is missing and that something is off. Because there is only one thing in this world that is infinitely captivating. There is only one person who is eternally exciting and he is the one who came first, and he is the one who will endure to the end, and he is the one who sustains all things by his power. And an incredible thing happens when we turn our attention to him. We begin to order our affections more rightly. He gives us that ability, not because of the strength in us to do the good work, but because of replacing our desires with a better, more godly, more desirable goal, Jesus Christ himself, because he is the firstborn of all that's created. And so... 
There's another thing that happens when we do that. Not only do our affections order rightly, but we also find help with our sorrows and our trials as well. Because the firstborn of creation is also the firstborn from the dead. And so what we learn and what Paul reminds us here is that Jesus Christ is the one who goes before us in death. That though he led a perfect life and though death had no claim on him, he willingly submitted to the Father and freely went to his death that he might conquer death for our sake and that we might follow him. He did this for you. He did this for me, that we might have peace with him and with God the Father. We didn't plan it this way, but I thought the passage that we read for our assurance was so wonderful, and it makes this point so poignantly. In First Peter, Peter says, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was revile, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He bore himself our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And in this way, Jesus offers us peace even in our trials. And so turning to the one who's preeminent, we see that our life is not a life apart from trial. It is not a life separated from suffering. For even our Lord, the one who had no sin, walked a life of suffering. And in doing so, he offers us his peace. You might think about the many ways that uh, you have either inadvertently or uh, purposely placed yourself in first, appoint, uh, first importance and think about the ways in which that has brought more trial and more pain on your life. I know that the times that I think that it's up to me, when I forget that Jesus is first, when I place myself as first, I often find stress and I find anxiety. I sometimes find depression. I find great sorrow and sadness. Because when we think that everything is up to us, we take on too much because we think we are the ones who, is going, who are going to make everything right. And children, if you're here this morning, don't miss the way that this happens to you. At school, you may want to be the one that everybody looks up to. You may want to be the one that the teacher gives the most praises to. You may want to be the example for everybody else. Or maybe you do school at home and you're the one that wants to set the way the day should go or the order of importance of how you should do things. We all make that switch in our head where we place ourselves as first. And whether you're old or young, it is so easy to do. 
And our passage this morning is a wonderful reassurance that you and I are not first. And to realize that there's someone who's more capable, who's more powerful, who's more thoughtful, who's more loving, who's more kind, who's more humble, who can work out, who's more trustworthy to work out all of the details of your life. And that can bring peace. It is not up to you. Remember that Jesus Christ is the one who created you. He's the very one who sustains you in your life. And so he offers you the ability to trust him, to trust him with the difficulties and the joys you face. Like Peter talks about how he trusted his father. He did not avoid his suffering, but when he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And so Jesus Christ offers us a similar path that we path that we can place our trust in him, that we can place both our joys and our trials in him and know that he is powerful to deal with them. And he isn't just some theoretical idea, some heavenly idea that helps us order our thinking right, but he actually works. And specifically, he works by reconciling all things to himself. And that's our second point this morning is that verse 20 concludes this passage by telling us that Jesus Christ reconciles everything to himself. What does this mean, that he reconciles all things to himself? Unless you're an accountant or a bookkeeper, you may not use that word reconcile daily in your life. But the word reconcile essentially at its core means to make right. To reconcile something is to take something that's off. And to make it right. And that's exactly what Jesus did here. That's exactly what he does. He reconciles everything to himself. Because he knows that everything has something that's off with it. There's something wrong with everything in all creation. It's not just you. It's not just that sadness that you have in your heart. Or that feeling of inequity that you carry with you. There is something wrong with everything. And as we've already alluded to earlier, everyone experiences this this knowledge that there is something that's off. Even people like Tom Brady who seem to have it all together. Everyone knows that there is something more. And so even the best things that we experience, the love of our family, the joy of a birth of a child, the victory or at work or on the field, or even the comfort that we can offer to a friend in a time of sadness. All of these things are only good and temporary. So even in our best moments, we often face the reality that we need more. And our passage this morning teaches us that Jesus Christ is the only one who is able to reconcile all of these things in both your happiness and your sadness. Jesus is the one who will bring full reconciliation. He is the one who will one day make right all of the wrong that you have ever faced. He is the one who will wipe every tear from every face, who will bring the fullness of all of the good that you've ever seen. He will bring the fullness of that experience to you in his peace and love. He began this work long ago telling us that he had planned it from the beginning. 
He is the one who was promised in the Garden of Eden from Adam and Eve's very first sin. He is the one that the whole Old Testament looks forward to. He is the fulfillment of every promise that we find there, every prophecy that we see. He is the one who, again, wipes away all tears. He is the one who has put an end even to death itself and has become the firstborn from the dead. And by rising from the grave, he offers us peace. Praise be to our Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like to close our time this morning by addressing if there's anyone here who may not know Jesus, who may not receive or experience a relationship that knows what that means. Maybe you're new to the church. Maybe a friend invited you here this morning, or maybe you're a child or a teenager who's been sitting week by week, but has been begin questioning, do I really know and believe these things that I've been taught my whole life? Either way, what I would ask you is just to ask a simple question. What if these things are true? What if Jesus is who he says he is? What if he really is the one who's before all things? Wouldn't that be so comforting to know that you have someone who loves you, who has planned the order of your world, that has created everything that you see around you, has given you every good gift out of his love, but has also met with you in the difficulties of life. Know that Jesus stands ready and willing to offer you peace. And what if he really is the one that reconciles all things? Don't you want to know that it all ends well? Don't you want to know that everything bad that you've ever experienced will come undone? And everything good that you've ever experienced and thought, I want more of that, you will be given more into its fullness. Isn't that what your heart is longing for? Know that if it is, Jesus Christ offers you that. Turn to him Trust in him, believe in him, encounter him and know him and go to him in prayer and ask him to reveal himself to you and he will be faithful to you. Let's pray now that he would be faithful to us, his children. Lord God, as we come to your word and we see just some of the heights and the depths of what you teach us, of who you are and what you have done. We pray that you would open our eyes more to see your grace. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning that does not know you in this way, that you would do a miraculous work in their heart, turning hearts of flesh into hearts of stone, that your children may know you. And for those who have known you for so long, God, would you in your kindness, would you in your mercy, Order our affections to know that you are the one who is first. You are the one who is better. You are the one who reconciles all things to yourself. And in that, God, would you extend to us, your children, peace. Grant us peace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.